You are listening to the Blooming Inspired Podcast Network. We exist to empower the voices of women who live their lives blooming alive through podcast community. Now, here is your host. Welcome to Accidental Hope Podcast, a community that seeks hope and healing from a faith perspective. My name is Jennifer. And I'm not an expert, but I do share life experiences because I believe it will help someone else. So get ready to open your heart, laugh, cry, and receive. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for Season 3 of Accidental Hope. Today on the show, I have a special guest and new friend. His name is Jesse Shrake, and I know that you are going to welcome him, open your heart to his story and his message, and um, hopefully share it with maybe some young people, too. Um, But, Jesse, thanks for coming on the show. I'm so glad to have you. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I am doing better than I deserve. (laughs) <laughs> oh, amen, right? Better, it would be better if I were in Texas and it was like 70 degrees instead of, you know, 9 degrees here in Ohio. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I'm good. <laughs> I can't even. Oh, my goodness. I can't even. My brain can't go there. 9 degrees. I would be like shivering and turning blue. <laughs> Pretty bad, yeah. That's awesome. Well, now I even feel like more like you deserve a medal because you're like in your car. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself before you get into your story. Yeah. So my name again is Jesse Shrake. I am a 27 year old husband and father of two boys. Um, They are the two cutest children in the world. Uh, no one can tell me any different. I'm not biased for anything, but and they're, they're best buddies. Uh, Maddox, you know, my, my oldest takes care of the youngest. And anytime the youngest gets in, put in timeout or something, Maddox is right there telling him that I'm not allowed to do that. So I've been married to my beautiful wife, Savannah, for seven and a half years. We got married at night. We were both 19 years old when we got married. We're high school sweethearts. Uh, so we've been together a little over 11 years. Yes, I think that's the kind of basic introduction to me. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, congratulations on that because you guys were young like us. You know how we were 21 and 22 when we got married, but, you know, everybody's kind of just watching you for like, it feels like the first, you know, five years, you know, and it's like, no, we got yeah. this. Yeah. So We're not going to be one of the statistics. Uh, people, when we got married, uh, we had several people the day of the wedding ask us when, when the baby was due, you know, because people don't get married at 19 anymore. And so we waited a couple of years just to let everyone know that that's not why. (laughs) Well, we had a plan to wait a few years, but God had other plans. So (laughs) our first child was due on our anniversary, our one year anniversary. He was due on, he was practically a honeymoon baby, but. It, it all worked out, you know, yeah. so it wouldn't change anything, but Jesse is a caddy like myself, and I'll go ahead and explain. Caddy is causing accidental death or injury. Did you, were you guys dating when um, you had your accident or? Yes. So we okay. had been dating for about a year Wow. Um, during the time of the accident. So, you know, my wife has, we've been together. I mean, we literally, you know, something traumatic like that happened. And that's really where, you know, my development as a person feels like it started. 
so I literally feel like my wife and I've been together my entire life, you know, because anything before the accident is almost, you know, kind of irrelevant to me or kind of a blur. Um, so yeah, we've been, uh, she's been there through, through all of it. She's, she's a blessing and, uh, that's amazing. Right. And I, I get that because that kind of, I mean, it bonds you. I mean, to have that support system and to still have someone who unconditionally loves you. That's amazing. That's awesome. Um, okay. Well, go ahead. And if, you know, if, however you feel led, share us a little about like your story and where that testimony begins. Okay. So I was uh, 16 at the time of the accident. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, I was hanging out with my best friend since preschool. I mean, the guy was basically a brother to me. I mean, I would say that we were as close as brothers. I was hanging out with him and his two younger brothers. Um, so he was 16 or 17 and then his brothers were 15 and 12. And we basically stayed up all night the night before playing Xbox, drinking Mountain Dew. You know, we didn't have any responsibilities the next day. Um, you know, it was just one of those, you know, not a care in the world. Yeah. The The only thing we had to do was we knew that that next day is sometime in the afternoon or evening. Um, our high school was putting in new bleachers for the football field, and both of our parents were on the boosters. So we obviously got volunteered to go help with that. But, you know, that was one of the things where it's kind of up in the air. Whenever we decided to go help, you know, that was up to us. So we actually waited. We knew with our plan was to wait until it got close enough to dark. That by the time we got there, we really didn't have to do much. Typical. Yeah. Yes, yeah <laughs> Total like, boy. I love yeah. it. Yeah, and I think I say that with love. Yes, yeah. Oh, it it was, you know, it was one of the things we were like, yeah, we really didn't want to help with all this, and but you know, mom and dad, they're on the boosters, so we got to. So, you know, messing around outside, and uh, it was getting closer to to the evening time. We knew we had to go over to the school, but we wanted to go to my house first because our plan was that after we helped out there, we were going to another one of our friends' house to stay the night and essentially do the same thing that night. So. I said, well, I have to stop home. I had to get some clothes and grab some tools and stuff to make it look like we came uh, prepared and ready to work. And so we got to my house. And from his house to my house, we both kind of grew up in the country. Um, from his house to mine was about a five-mile drive, all backcountry roads, you know, roads that, that both we, I'd driven you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, in the short time that I had my license. From his house to mine, uh, I just kind of, Kept the kept the pedal to the metal, um, you know. All all four of us boys just laughing, carrying on, carrying on, having a good time, and um, you know nothing happened, right? You know, and 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 really, what's funny, I would say I never really was big in the speed. You know, it's not like that would have been a normal thing for me. Um, I was pretty I was typically a pretty cautious driver, uh, but that day, you know, four you know, four guys in the car were all laughing, having a good time. You know, all of all of our rationale, the the filter that we use to make decisions, you know, the holes in that filter get bigger and bigger. And um, and so luckily, you know, on the way to our house, to my house, nothing happened. Uh, we got there, grabbed the things that we needed, and then we headed out to the school. So from my house to the school was about a 10 to 12 minute drive. Uh, once again, pretty much all backcountry roads. And um, and now these roads, like I very literally was on 
every single day, you know, even before the accident, um, you know, my dad would drive, anytime my dad would take me to school, these are the roads that we traveled. So, um, you know, to say that I've taken this route thousands of times is, you know, is definitely not an exaggeration. But again, from the moment I pretty much pulled out of my driveway, I had uh, the pedal to the floor the entire time. And we got on this road and it's about a three mile stretch, uh, again, kind of backcountry road between cornfields. And there's one intersection on that road uh, that's a, a road called uh, Moral Kirkpatrick. It runs into this little village uh, called Moral by where we live. And their road had a stop sign. Uh, the intersecting Moral Kirkpatrick did not. And so we're getting, you know, approaching this, uh, this intersection and I have my speedometer maxed out. Um, at this point, I had a 1993 Ford Explorer. So, you know, I was only maxed out at 85, but 85, 90 miles an hour, and that's still really fast. And we were getting to the point on the road where if I don't start to hit the brake now, if I just have to go, right? I think we call it the point of no return, where I either start hitting the brakes right now, or there's no way I'm going to be able to stop for the stop sign. So when we hit that point, I kind of looked over to my friend in the passenger seat and nudged, you know, to have him look his way to see if anyone was coming. I looked my way. Uh, no one was coming from my direction. And when I looked back to him, uh, he said, it's okay, go, go, go. So I kept the pedal to the floor and um, I, I, I never let my foot off of the gas and blew through the intersection. Um, what we didn't know was that the point that we were at on the road was the lowest point on Bear Road. The corn, we're talking, this has been in uh, July. It was the end of July. So the corn fields around here at that time are, you know, the corn's seven, eight foot tall. So the road, we were at the lowest point on the road. The corn field had a hill and the corn is up, you know, seven, eight feet. So he would have never been able to see, you know, anything coming unless it was like a semi or a pickup, you know, big pickup truck. Um, so at between anywhere from 85 to 95 miles an hour, ran through the stop sign. And um, I T-boned a van right behind the driver's side door. And um, once we hit the van, I mean, it, it all, things get really blurry. Things happen really fast. Well, so my vehicle, we went, we basically continued straight. So um, that just gives an idea of how much force, you know, there is going forward. We hit the broadside of the van and continued in a basically straight line. Um, we were in the ditch for most of that. Uh, time just riding the ditch and at one point we actually were headed right towards the telephone pole um, when my car spun counterclockwise literally so going forward and started to spin backwards that spin literally we literally spun around the telephone pole you know of course I didn't know this at the time you know I didn't find out until a couple of days later we actually went back to the scene because there was an older couple that lived in the house that we want I wanted to go talk to we spun completely around the telephone pole. Eventually, uh, my car came to a stop in the center of, a road, of the road facing, um, kind of facing the cornfield. And uh, I remember that when my car stopped, the first thing I heard was screaming coming from the back. Um, it was my best friend's youngest brother, who was 12. He was almost ejected out the back hatch, so my back hatch opened up. And as he was traveling backwards, his seatbelt wrapped his leg and held him in. Uh, at least that's what, I mean, that's what we believe happened, you know, because he was all tangled up by the time I looked back at him. So then I looked to right behind me to the other brother who was 15. Uh, he had a little bit of blood running down his forehead from where his head had hit the back of my seat, but he said, I'm okay. 
He said he was going to take care of the youngest. He said, you take care of Chad, which was my, my best friend in the passenger seat. And so I go from looking directly behind me to look at my friend beside me. And as I'm turning, uh, I'm saying, Chad, are you okay? And before I even finished the sentence, I recognize that he's not there. There's no one in this passenger seat. You know, really quickly, I, I knew that he was ejected, but I'm looking at the windshield and it's, it's all spider web. I can't see out of it, but it's still all intact. Um, and then I noticed his doors open. So what had happened was when we spun around that telephone pole, his door came open and he was ejected out the side right behind the telephone pole. So after a couple of minutes of searching for him, I'm screaming, you know, trying to find him. I see, uh, I look over by his telephone pole and I see all kinds of like the stuff that was in the back of my truck. Uh, so I run over and as I get closer, I start to hear, um, breathing. I can hear him as I'm getting, I was probably 20, 30 feet away, but it's, it's not normal breathing. It's, it's, um, like one long inhale followed by a lot of short choppy exhales. And I'm yelling for him as I'm getting closer and I get up to him and I recognize he's, he's alive. You know, obviously he's breathing, but he's unconscious. So I, I kind of begin to panic because, you know, I'm 16. I don't know CPR. I don't know first aid. Um, there's nothing that I can really do to help him. So all I do is I kind of get him flipped over flat on his back, just kind of all hunched over in the field. And I'm just talking to him like, Chad, are you okay, man? Like, come on, like, wake up. Um, and so I'm just kind of looking over, you know, his legs. I'm kind of feeling around to see if I can feel any like major broken bones, anything like that. Um, and the only thing, you know, I mean, he had some cuts, obviously, and bruises, but there was nothing that was so noticeable that I thought, oh, this is really, you know, he's got a terrible injury. Um, but as I'm sitting there, I start to hear a gurgle. Um, and so he, so blood was building up in his throat, whether it was from internally or whether it was from, you know, a laceration in his mouth of some sort. Um, all I knew is that, like, there's blood in his throat and I can't let him, you know, drown in his own blood. So I told his head. About when that happened, um, his brother ran up and let me know that the youngest is okay. Um, he's probably got a broken leg, but other than that, he's fine. He says, you know, youngest brother's okay. I, he says, I'm fine. Obviously, I was okay because I was, you know, trying to, attending to his oldest brother. And uh, he asked me, he said, how's, how's Chad? And I just kind of shrugged. I said, I, I, I don't know, right? Because I don't know how to assess this. I don't know. He's not conscious, right? But he's alive. Right in that moment, you know, at least the way I remember it is, you know, in that moment is when I kind of realized we're not alone in this, right? That, like, we didn't just go off the road and hit a tree or, you know, flip into a cornfield after hitting, you know, a loose patch of gravel. Like, there's another vehicle. And that means there's more people. So I leave my friend with his brother. I run back. Um, we are, my car came to a stop about 80 yards roughly from the point of impact. So, again, that's just saying that, like, we hit the broadside of the van and continued forward in a ditch for 80 yards. So I run back to this intersection. I kind of turn the corner and I see this van. It, it had hit one of the telephone poles. So there's like a pole kind of halfway down on top of it. And it was, I mean, it didn't even really look like a vehicle, right? I mean, it was so beat up. It was, um, you know, it's this big Astro van. And the side door behind the drive, the driver's side door and passenger door was one of the sliding doors. And it was punched in and pushed back just enough that I could kind of get my head in there. I'm kind of, you know, navigating through telephone wires and, you know, I'm trying to walk in this ditch and I peek my head in and I'm like, is anyone in here? Is everyone okay? 
and there was nothing. Right? There, I didn't see anyone. I didn't hear anyone. So my first thought was kind of this, this thought of almost relief because I, there was a house on one of the corners. And so I knew there was an older couple that lived there. So I think what I assumed was that whoever was in this car, the older couple has them in their house. You know, they're, they're being taken care of. And which means I can get back to my best friend. Right. So I don't know if it was a five relief, but I, I was kind of now back to that singular focus. I'm like, got to get back to Chad. Like, got to get back to my friend. So I take off to run. And as my vision kind of pans the, uh, the ditch, kind of pans the grass, I see a body laying probably 25 feet from me. So I, I kind of run over and I look down and I see this woman um, laying there. And there's, she's not breathing. She's not moving. There's, there's really just no sign. There's no sign of life at all. And that was, you know, up to this point, like I knew this was very serious, right? But there's adrenaline going, like it's almost like when your adrenaline goes that fast and, you know, something like this happens, you're almost in like going down a checklist, right? There's no time to panic. And you're so young. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're in shock too. Yeah. Yeah. And so it goes from like, okay, I got, I was, Chad's in the ditch. You know, the other two brothers are okay, check. You know, I'm okay, check. There's no one in this van, check. I got to get back to chat, right? Like, that's kind of, I think, how my mind is working. And when I see this woman, that that kind of, um, I guess, thought process is shattered, right? Because now, you know, I've checked all these boxes. Now I have to uncheck one. And it's not just a little thing, right? Like, this isn't like, oh, I forgot to do something. I mean, this is like, oh, my God, there's this woman laying here. Nothing I can do here. And if he's the next one to go, right, like, I, I have to be there with him. Like, I have to tell my best friend I love him. Like, I got to tell him I'm sorry. And so I just, I take off, and I run back to my friend. Um, and as I'm running back, I hear a motorcycle pull up next to her van. So I, I knew that someone was there, and I'm just hoping that whoever's there can help her. And right as I get, I get back to my friend, as I get back to him, his brother takes off and runs back to the youngest brother. Um, and basically right when I get to him, I hear another vehicle pull up next to mine and I hear the doors open and shut and I'm, you know, I'm hearing voices and yelling and, and I, I remember thinking, who is that? That sounds really familiar. Who is that? And so I pop my head around the cornfield, kind of around the telephone pole and I see my dad, uh, running up to me and, and to where my friend was at. So my parents were actually on their way home from the school and we were on our way to the school from home. So you know, two minutes, you know, had we left two minutes later, had they left two minutes earlier, you know, they may have seen it or they may have been involved in it or, you know, maybe I would have seen them coming and, you know, not ran, who knows. But um, my parents were basically the first people on the scene. Um, At least they were the first people on kind of our side of the scene. And at that point, all the adrenaline is keeping me kind of functional. Well, there's this, this, psychological kind of theory about uh, comfort blankets and you know so when you know you're in this high stress environment your your adrenaline's pumping it's keeping you going it's keeping you kind of kind of logical almost and once a comfort blanket something you know that that's comforting is introduced the adrenaline gets the signal from your brain to dissipate and so you once fall my apart and i fall apart so once my yeah. parents get there for me it's actually pretty blurry i used to think it was that i had a clear memory about all of this funny and you know um and we'll talk about um me and amanda's book later but in the book that, I, that we wrote 
um, as I was going through the events of that evening and I was talking to my parents and to my sister and, and to other people that were kind of involved, there were things that I was sure of that happened that just didn't. Because by the time my parents got there and at some point, some volunteer EMS and volunteer firefighters from the village had showed up. And at some point, someone put a neck brace on me and told me to lay down on the ground and not move. And for what felt like days, right? I mean, it felt like days and hours. I mean, just felt forever. I laid there and listened to all this chaos building around me and seeing, you know, flashing lights and sirens and helicopters. And, um, you know, and at one point, you know, I can kind of see where my best friend is at out in my peripheral. But I remember the first ambulance showing up and then leaving. I thought the first ambulance was coming from my best friend, right? Selfish, selfish me, right? I'm like, hey, like he's the most important person here. Get him. But so the first ambulance came and went. And, you know, there were literally cars backed up from on each part of this intersection, all four directions. I've been told that each each uh, road or each direction was backed up almost a mile. Finally, I see an ambulance show up to pick up my friends. They leave. And my understanding is that, as it, that at that point, I'm the last one that has to leave in an ambulance. And so, you know, cars are kind of starting to leave. You know, some of the lights and sirens are shutting down. You know, everything kind of, the dust is kind of starting to settle on the scene. And so I'm the last one. And the ambulance gets there to pick me up. And they're, you know, getting ready to put me on the, the gurney or the backboard or whatever. Right before the ambulance shows up, my mom asks me to see the woman that was driving the car. And I said, I did. I said, it's not good. And she said, no. She said, did you know who it was? And I said, no. And she said, uh, Jess, it was, it was Jane Watt. So when she said the name, immediately, um, I knew who it was. So this woman um, was very influential in our little community. She was actually the mayor of that little village. Um, you know, I didn't know mayor, villages had mayors, right? But she was the mayor of that little village. Um, she was on the school board of the high school that I went to for years. She was a retired teacher from there. Uh, she was super involved in like the 4-H, um, like horse shows and all of that. Like this woman had her, had her hand in every aspect of our little community. So I knew her and her family fairly well, right? It, it was clear, like this isn't a stranger, right? This is someone that I grew up knowing who she was. Um, it's funny, she always had kind of a reputation at, uh, like the fair, like she was the horse lady, like, and she was the lady, like, don't mess with the horses or she'll come get you. Uh, but she, she was a teacher and she loved kids. She, I mean, she, there are a lot of people and I'll, I'll talk about her funeral, you know, probably in a little bit, but it, I, I talk about that because at the time that made it, I guess, even worse, right? It's, it's not, you know, it's bad enough that I'm seeing this woman fighting for her life. And then my best friend, you know, is in a ditch, but it makes it, you know, it, it, it's not my best friend and a stranger, right? Not that that makes it, that, that would have made it any better. But for me, a 16 year old kid, you know, now it's my best friend and this woman that I've known for a long time, you know, and I know her family. You're trying to process so, all of that. Yeah. 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 Cause it's easy in the moment. Again, it's easy in the moment to kind of forget about the people that are Right, like As a 16 year old boy, you know, yeah. you're, you're just, yeah. And I want to make sure I, I protect you in this too. I mean, like the thought process here is where if, if you were a soldier, you know what I mean? And you are, you know, fighting in a war, this is the type of trauma that produces PTSD. And like in your yeah. mind, 
your best friend is like your your fellow soldier and then yeah. you're you're just your process you're trying to take in layers of things happening at one time just like your mom trying to also process this this yeah. situation too and it's so big especially for someone who is not emotionally and you know mature yet yeah. to really handle what's what's really happening right here yeah because you know it, it's easy to compartmentalize you know in times like this i mean that's, that's really what adre the adrenaline kind of helps you do i mean that's really the the that's what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to help you compartmentalize and 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 kind of focus on one thing and so yeah at the time the biggest thing to me was my best friend and now it's like you know the the compartment that that this woman laying in the ditch was in just grew to equal the size of my best friend. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, like how do I, you know, how do I deal with this? So that's, you know, so my mom had just told me that they're getting me onto the, you know, get, trying to get me into the ambulance. As they're putting me on the backboard, I heard, I hear two paramedics talking to one another, and I hear one ask the other, "How's the baby? Is the baby going to be okay?" And immediately, I mean, I lost it because that just Right. It wasn't, you know, wasn't enough. I had these, this compartment for my best friend and this compartment for this woman that I knew, right? This super influential, important woman in our community. Now there's a baby, right? And it's like, which, which of these compartments, like, where do I even give my, my brain? Like, where do I go with this? And so certainly uh, a freak out moment for me. It got me calmed down again, got me into the ambulance. Um, I start asking, you know, how's the baby, you know, how's the baby? And with the, the EMT, what I found out later was that the EMTs that picked, the ambulance that picked me up was actually the first ambulance there. And the person that was on the motorcycle went into the field and found this baby. And when that first ambulance got there, the baby was handed off. And that, you know, that was the first ambulance. So this guy had seen, the, you know, had been the one working on this, this little baby. And all he would tell me was, she's alive. But it was not like, oh, yeah, she's alive. It was not a good, it was just, she's alive. That's the old, that's, the, that's it. What was I, it like when you started to feel the consequences of everything? Like, um, you know, how was that as a young man starting to realize? It was, uh, there was so much going on. Right. You know, it, I don't think I even realized. That I was what I was going through until I was already through it. Right. Um, you know, th there's, uh, I've heard sermons on, you know, there are times when you're in the briar patch, you know, there are times where you're in the thorns and on the other side of this, you know, this big field of thorns, there's an open field. Right. And so the, the best way to get through the, the field of thorns is just to keep taking steps and just don't look at them, you know, it almost it not, not pretend that they're not there but just be so focused on what's, you know, what's ahead that you almost forget about what you're going through. And I think, you know, in my life, not that I even did this intentionally, right. Cause I was so young and I was just, there was so much going on and it was such a, uh, such a, an important part of my life developmentally that, you know, I mean, I had, you know, relationships, I was, you know, found church, you know, and that's really, really, this is what brought me to, to, to Christ. Like, there were so many things happening that I don't even know that I felt the weight of the consequences that I was going through them, but I don't even know that I ever was able to stop and think about it 
so, but I do know when we get to court, there's so, there's so much because I'm skipping a lot to kind of go to consequences. So I'll, I'll, I'll hit a couple bullet points before I get there. So what I found out, what I found out at the hospital was that the little girl was this woman, Jane's granddaughter. She was 18 months old. She was ejected. I actually babysat this little girl a month before the accident at the county fair while her mom helped out with the rodeo. So actually me and Chad, me and my best friend, sat with this little girl um, and her brother on our golf cart. So this was right. We were all interconnected. And so I found out, you know, about her um, at the hospital. I found out that my best friend was life lighted to uh, Columbus. And then right before I was um, released, my parents came in and told me that Jane had passed away on the way to the hospital. And I remember that being such a, a, a devastating blow. Now I knew, right. Like I saw her, I knew that, whatever news about her that I would get was not going to be good. But when dad says it, right, it makes it real. I remember all I could think or say was I'm a killer, right? I think that maybe that may be the first moment that I felt the consequence because now my identity is starting to change in my own brain. You know, now I, I go from being this kid with a bright future, um, you know, decent, you know, athlete, you know, I have all these good things going for me uh, to now my, I'm starting to identify as a killer. Right. And imme- I mean, immediately the, my parents, well, my parents, my grandmother, my sister and the hospital chaplain came in to give me that news. And the conversation, it's, I'm actually glad that this is a faith uh, oriented um, podcast because I don't get to talk about this a whole lot. And this is probably one of the biggest moments of my life, um, at least setting the, the ground, you know, for the biggest moments of my life. This, this chaplain was talking to me as I'm sitting there just a mess. And he said, I know this isn't going to make sense to you right now, um, but when the dust settles and, and things calm down for you, I want you, to, I want you to think about three things. I want you to think about the family that you have, right? The family that's here for you. I want you to, to focus on, on your family. You just focus on your friends. He said, you're going to lose a lot of friends. He said, the ones that stick by you through this will be your friends for life. And he said, and the third thing, and I think the most important is to, to think about your faith. And that was it. That's really all I remember. I'm sure he said some other stuff, but um, that's what I remember. And it's funny because later down the line, when I actually, when the dust settled and I realized like how thankful I am to have my family, you know, I, that, I would say not all, but a vast majority of my friends, you know, kind of abandoned me, which you know, I don't blame them, right? They're 16 too, right? They're trying to figure out their own lives. Why would they want to, you know, deal with someone with the type of baggage that, that I'm carrying around too? And they so, don't know what to say, you know, even yeah, adults though, yeah. adults don't yeah. even know what to say. Yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, we've been through it. And if, if someone came to me and explained to me this, this situation, but it happened to them, like I've been through it and I wouldn't necessarily know what to say. So uh, when I really thought about my faith, um, you know, it was, it was weak. Um, I, I, think at that time I maybe believed in God, but to say I had a good Christian, like, you know, theologically correct thought process, you know, my parents would take me to church, you know, but if we decided we didn't want to go to church, we just didn't go, right? There wasn't a priority for us until after the accident. Um, So I actually ended up in youth group, uh, and the woman who was the youth pastor was good friends with with Jane, the the woman who died. And um, I remember that first time going, I mean, she's the one who invited me and the love and compassion that she showed me um, in that, in that time frame. I mean, that was a, 
that's what kept me in youth group, right? When it was tough to be around people when I was just depressed and down. I mean, it was that relationship that I had that kind of helped me, you know, along the way continue going. You know, one, I wanted to say I'm sorry. I know it's like, you know, been longer than my accident, but um, I, I'm, I'm watching you and it's just like, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit because it is so traumatic. And when you see someone who is, um, knows the depth of this brokenness, but yet here you are a husband and father and you're functioning and then you're giving back to kids and telling them, hey, you know, speeding matters. You know, can you tell us like briefly, like what do you say to young people? How, you know, how have you been able to use the most shameful or painful part of your life and use it for good? Because that so is a, important. Yeah, so that's a good question. I so first, I I have to give credit, um, well, certainly to God, right? Like this isn't something that people are able to do. I love, you know, I'm the type I would love to take credit for it, you know, because I'm just such this incredible person, right? But, um, but you know, I know that everything that I have is is from God, and so the, the Holy Spirit has been working through this since it happened. Um, the three days after the accident, the woman whose daughter was ejected and thrown into a cornfield and whose mother died the night of the accident, um, she came to the hospital. As I, my best friend was in a coma. Um, he actually ended up being in a coma for about a month and a half-ish. Um, and she came to the hospital, and the first thing she said to me was that she loved me, she forgave me, God forgives me, and forgive myself. Um, and she said, you know, we're in this together. This is part of both of our stories now. There's no getting around it. And, you know, she, I mean, she, we had a really good conversation. So that, so that's one, that's, that's part of, that's a big part of the reason why I was able to kind of move forward with less shame, right? There's always going to be this level of shame around this. Um, and I think that's okay. But knowing that the one person on this earth that has more right than anyone else to hate me, and to blame me and to want me dead or locked up that the one person on earth that has all of that right is the one that was there in me. I mean, she was there before most of my friends were saying she loved me. She forgave me. So that was a, that was a huge part of being able to move kind of forward through the shame. Um, now it did give me kind of a sense of arrogance. Um, you know, I was 16. I was an arrogant, uh, I was kind of an arrogant jerk before all of this and then certainly after it too in high school um but it kind of gave me this this thought process when i would be when my peers would say things you know to try to hurt me the thought process i i would have was who the heck are you you know your mom didn't die in this your daughter didn't and so i was able to kind of essentially say that it didn't matter right so so that's you know i say all that just to kind of say like um, do you think that was a defense mechanism Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, oh, I have all kinds of stories that make me look really terrible. Um, and sometimes I do get to share them because, you know, looking back, not that it's funny, but it's just, it's, it's kind of humorous to me that that's where I went as a defense mechanism. But, uh, maybe we'll get into that, uh, maybe we'll get into that on the next episode or something. But, um, so I say all that to kind of get me to the point where, um, because we had, because her and I had that kind of relationship and she was absolutely instrumental in making sure that I didn't go to prison. 
Um, had it not been for her, I'd be in prison today. Um, I, I just, I believe that. Had it not been for her following what God was telling her to do. So, um, so because I had that kind of, I was set free when she did that. And so now I felt like even, at, even before the trial, before, like, I was able to talk to people about it. And I always wanted people to know the, the absolute truth about the accident. You know, on Facebook, people would say things. I remember I got in a lot of trouble with my parents and my attorneys because anytime I'd see someone post about it on Facebook, I'd want to get in and correct them. But I always wanted people to know the truth. Um, and so after the trial, one of the consequences I had was that I had to speak to a group of teenagers every single month that they'd all receive some form of traffic violation. So it's part of our county's um, juvenile traffic court that they get a ticket. One of the things, one of their consequences, they come to this class. So I had to go see, I mean, immediately after the trial. So the trial took 18 months to get through. And so month 19, after um, this accident, I'm talking to my peers. I'm still in high school. And so I'm not talking to, you know, now I'm 27, I'm talking to kids. You know, as I always say, I'm talking to kids. Then I was talking to people that I knew and explaining to them what happened. And, you know, I, after the first couple of, it was absolutely nerve wracking, um, you know, cause I didn't have a cohesive train of thought, you know, at that time about this, I was just, you know, I was telling kids like, don't be like me. He does. This is what happened. Don't be like me. Don't do this. Yeah. Um, and then I can't pinpoint exactly which class it was. But I remember um, someone basically saying that it really impacted them. You know, another kid that close to my age saying, like, that was really helpful. Like, I've been dealing with X, Y, Z, and this, you know, your perspective has helped me. And, like, it was just one of the things where I, it was that little bit of, like, a high almost. Like, okay, it's, it's, it's good. This is a good thing that I'm doing. And so, you know, I was kind of forced into it because of my, um, you know, the consequences through the court. But I really got to the point where I would look forward to these classes because, you know, I had a platform that I could talk to these, to at the time, my peers, and now to, to kids that are, you know, I see these kids driving around town, you know, these, and so it got to the point I was doing it once a month. And then when I went away to college, um, there was, uh, I was actually, I actually filmed a video for a driver's ed class and I've always been very open about it. And I always thought, like, if I could use this for good, like, it, it, and again, this sounds bad, but it, I think most people understand, if I can use this for good, then it's not, and maybe it won't feel so bad. Yeah. You know, well, I, you can't take it back. And, and yeah, yeah. I say that because I had the same thing where, not that I wanted to be righteous, like, trying to tell everybody how they should be driving. Um, yeah. Maybe some ways a little bit, you know, then who am I, this hypocrite, to tell everybody how they should drive safely. Um, but I think it's like if I can't change the past, if I can't change the past, maybe I can help that one person for the future. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I think for, for me, um, it took me a long time to realize. I, at one point, I used to think that this was part of my purpose. Um, but then, you know, you get into some theological, you know, deep thinking like, and well, this isn't part of my purpose because God didn't, didn't will this to happen, right? It was my will that caused this, and God's just using it. Um, but, you know, I used, to, I used to take this on as like, okay, I, I have to do good. And, and every class that I talked to, if at least one of the kids was paying enough attention, 
that it impacts one decision that they make because that's what I tell them. I mean, anywhere that I speak, you know, I've kind of honed in now. The thing that I always say is that your decisions matter, right? Every decision that we make today affects the entire rest of our lives, even small things. Because had I ran that stop sign and no one had been coming, right? Like that would have been a very small decision. People run stop signs all the time with no consequences. All the time. Yeah. Or speed. Yep. Yeah. Or speed. I mean, it's, and so what I tell people, what I tell kids all the time is like, listen, first, I want them to understand that everyone has this misconception that when you turn 18, you have a blank slate. And that's just absolutely false. Um, You know, even legally, you know, I used to think that, oh, once I turn 18, everything is expunged. Expunged doesn't mean what people think it means. It it actually, this actually helped, kept me from getting uh, some financial licenses. I was on track to be a financial, um, a financial, I was a financial planner. But I wasn't able to get my investment license because I had juvenile felonies after they were expunged. So, you know, even career-wise, it affects you. But beyond that, right, like, there's not a day that goes by that the fact that my decision led to someone else's death, there's not a day that goes by that that changes, right? That's going to be true for the rest of time. And that's impactful even though it happened when I was 16, I'm 27 now. That still is true, and that's still meaningful, right? That still carries a lot of weight. And so I always tell kids, every decision that you make matters, right? You know, kind of the butterfly effect thing, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's what I really try to get across to kids. And I say, listen, it's not just about driving, right? I have this platform because of driving, but, I mean, this is in every – this is – in everything. It's in every area of our life. So, um, you know, I know that at 16, I would not have probably received that messaging um, easily. And so I have to do, you know, I have to really do my best to relate with these kids and to get them to see like my, their decisions have immediate consequences for them and for other people. They have, you know, long-term consequences for them and other people. Right. Everything that we do doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone else around us because I went to the memorial for James and it was held in our high school gymnasium. And um, I talked to, to her daughter, Amanda, and she said that the book that you sign at funerals and stuff, you know, to give your condolences, had 2,500 lines and they were full. And so we're talking, you know, I mean, this, our gymnasium was full for this woman, you know, uh, memorial. And so every single one of those people was affected in a very negative way because of, of a one action, one decision that I made. And so, you know, there are people to this day that probably that still think about Jane Watt and miss her and cry because, you know, they can't just call her and see how she's doing or call her for a question. Um, and that's on me. And so I tell these kids, like, that, that's the importance of your decision. Because, again, running the stop sign is not a big decision until the consequences are big. No, I know. And and you want so much for people to like connect with that because yeah. that's what's going to maybe make these decisions different. I mean, we can't stop all accidents, but it breaks my heart that they happen every day. Um, I, um, I'm so thankful for Amanda and her reaching out to you. And that's incredible too. And 
because that's what we all pray for is that type of forgiveness. You know, one of the, I have very, I wasn't growing up in the church. And so there's like a couple of verses that I just literally, besides the books of the Bible, like singing the songs, you know, but I remember over and over again, you know, this, I don't even know who taught me this or what church I was at, but probably got invited somewhere. And it was like, you know, don't judge others or you will be judged. The level of compassion that Amanda extended to you, it gives me so much hope because I, I, you know, I haven't been in touch with the family of my accident, um, not directly anyway. And every day I think of them, you know, just like what you're saying now and how beautiful that is, how beautiful it is that you can have this relationship and that you can not stay bitter, but open your heart up. Tell us about the book, um, A Blessed Tragedy, um, that you co-wrote with Amanda Watts and that process of that. And I just think it's, I just, it's, it's it's like a miracle. Okay. I mean, I don't even know what to say other than that's just a beautiful thing to to document because most people who've never been through this look on the outside and go, I don't know how they did that. Like, I don't know how, I, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could forgive someone for that. I don't know how I could go on. Um, you know, and that's when you have to be like, that's that trust beyond understanding that, that yeah. comfort beyond understanding that peace beyond understanding the forgiveness beyond understanding and it's um, so. Tell us a little bit about the book and that process with Amanda. Yeah. So Amanda and I, um, you know, I mean, she was there for me. She actually let me come to the hospital to see her daughter. Um, and, and a long story short about her daughter. So she had a lot of injuries. Um, she was thrown 50 feet into the cornfield, which is for people who don't um, maybe I guess understand how far 50 feet is. It's about 30 rows of corn. So she was catapulted, catapulted 30 rows of corn, landed face first in the dirt. She had her injury. The list of her injuries is just, it's very long. I mean, broken bone, both, both arms broken, both clavicles broken, uh, torn kidney, torn spleen. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. But the worst thing um, that they didn't find until nine days after the accident was that the base of her skull was detached from her spine. So the C1 vertebrae detached from her, uh, from her, the, the skull detached from the C1 vertebrae. It's very, um, very, it's a, it's a horrific injury. Very few people survive it. Um, there's only one doctor, two doctors in the nation that can fix it. One of them is the one that invented the surgery to fix it. They had to fly to Utah and I'm really you know, hitting these bullet points um, to just kind of say like, this woman went through hell with her daughter. You know, um, there'd only been about five of these surgeries performed on children and before, you know, before this little girl, her name's Briar. Um, and uh, hers was like the most complicated at the time because the surgery didn't go the way it was, you know, planned to go, but it ended up being okay. And even after the surgery, you know, she had a rogue vertebrae floating that could have at any point bumped her spine and paralyzed her. So, right, like, her mom gave me the forgiveness before any of this happened. Um, but she continued that forgiveness through the process of court. Um, when they told her that they wanted to put me away for 25 years, she said, absolutely not. That's not what my mother would have wanted. That's not what I want. Um, so she worked with the court on what my consequences were going to be. Um, 
And then, you know, I mean, we kept in touch, you know, over the years, every now and again, I would just message her, you know, from when I was in college and just ask how her daughter was doing and get the update. And sometimes the updates were great. And sometimes I was like, man, I wish I wouldn't have asked, you know, but I had to know. Um, and, but she always kept an open line of communication with me. And then, um, my wife and I moved back from Bluffton. So we were in college about an hour away. Uh, we moved back. I continued doing this program at the courthouse. Um, at that point, uh, you know, after I turned 23, um, no, after I turned 21, the program, I, like I didn't have to do the program anymore, but they asked me if I'd stay on. So now I'm, you know, the coordinator of the program, you know, they used to run an hour of me talking and then an hour of videos and stuff. And then they just gave me the whole thing. Um, and so Amanda had known that. And one day she just messaged me and, um, and we, we sat down, we grabbed coffee before. So we were kind of close, you know, I mean, we were to the point where we were friendly. We'd see each other occasionally we'd get coffee and just hang out and catch up. Um, but she, she said, she messaged me one day and asked if she could speak with me at this program. Um, she said, she just felt like God was calling her to do it. And he, she's like, I felt like he's called me to do it in the past. And I never asked. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like we have two hours and I always have to try to explain her side of the story anyway. And I do a terrible job of it because I wasn't, you know, intimate. I wasn't there the whole time. So, um, so she's like, I was like, yeah, absolutely. She said, when's the next one? And this was on a Sunday and uh, our program's on Mondays. And I said, the next one's actually tomorrow. Can you make it? And she was like, yeah. So she showed up. We didn't really have a plan because we didn't have time to, you know, plan our talk. And I said, well, here's the thing. I said, I'll go through the day of the accident and kind of leading up. And then when I get to the part where I normally talk about you and Briar and your mom, you just take over. And she did. And that was probably the best class that I'd ever had up to that point because one, the kids were able to feel, you know, the impact that it had on her family, not just me, but also there's just, there's a difference between, um, and Amanda's in her forties. There's a difference between a 27 year old guy talking to a group of teenagers that are mixed, right? Boys and girls and having a mother like figure there. I never felt that I was able to really reach the young ladies in the class. But when Amanda did it, I felt like the girls got so much more than what they normally get from me because I'm just, but it just felt better. It just felt right. It felt like it worked better. Afterwards, she was like, yeah, it's awesome. If you ever want me to, you know, to sit in again. And I was like, oh, no, no, Amanda, like you're doing this every month. Like you're committed. And so she's like, okay. You're in. <laughs> yeah, like you did it. It was great. You're in. And she's like, okay, yeah. Well, we joked that night about writing a book. And then in the month, you know, the, the next month, you know, we talked a little bit more about writing a book, but it was, we're busy people, right? Like she, like her daughter is busy with sports and school and, you know, I'm busy. And, and so the, that month goes by, we get to the next class. Uh, so month number two of teaching the class, a kid asks us, you guys, sh are, you guys should write a book. We're like, are you kidding me? Now we have to. Um, and then month three rolls around and another kid asks us. Right, so like, it's like, God, like, yeah, just, God's like, all right, it's time. I'm going to just you know? keep pounding you till you both yeah. say it's time. Uh, yep. Yep. So we both relented and, uh, decided to write a book. Neither of us had ever done that. Um, we ended up publishing like self-publishing through Amazon. We hired an editor. Um, 
and then we had to write, and so we decided to write it in a way that kind of bounced back and forth. So it was almost like a timeline, and you would get kind of my um, my perspective, and then her perspective, what she was going through at the time. Um, and it was interesting because there there aren't a ton of books written like that, <laughs> probably because they're really difficult, right? Because there's some things that we both went through kind of simultaneously that we don't want to write about twice. Uh, so it was a, it was, a, it felt like a very arduous process. I mean, it was, uh, it was difficult because, you know, to, to figure out what to say and how to say it and then to read it to each other. And, but it ended up working out. And I think it took us a little over a year, maybe. Are you <laughs> glad know. you did it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I was talking to Amanda uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, it's almost like I forgot with COVID, you know, we were speaking a lot. You know, we had several schools. Um, you know, we spoke at uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers Arena in front of like 400 kids from across the state. Like we were really starting to ramp up our speaking and then coronavirus, you know, just shut the everything down. And I said, you know, it's weird in this whole season. I almost forgot that we wrote a book. You know, sometimes you go, oh, yeah, I did that, you know, did that thing. And with her, she's like, oh, it's the exact opposite. She said, you know, she has people all the time talking to her about it. So I'm glad that we wrote it uh, because most people never, a lot of people start books. Um, very few people ever finish them. We've had a lot of really positive feedback uh, from people who have read it. Um, I mean, even across the country, people that have no clue who either of us are, but saw our book on Amazon and bought it. It's really cool to hear those, those kind of stories because what the one thing that a book does that I've, that I've recognized here recently. I'm not even, you know, we're not even really speaking anywhere anymore because of, of everything in, in culture today, but it's still reaching people. You know, this, this work that we did, that we put in, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, the past couple of years, it's still reaching people. And, you know, if God can't put someone, you know, geographically in front of us, well, he can put our story in front of them because of, you know, because of that we decided to listen to his instruction and just write the stinking book. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And I think it matters for someone who searched and searched and searched for people who were like me because it feels yeah. very isolating. And I know you probably felt that too until you happen to find, but then it's like, if there is an accident with fatality, then your friends like want to tell you, Hey, you know, and um, you know, because it, it, it just is, it's, it's a, even though it happens every single day, everywhere, thousands mm -hmm. of people, um, it still feels very isolating. So to hear someone and go, Oh, you know, I felt that too. Um, I went through that too. You know, it's, yeah. it's important to document and I'm glad that y'all did it. And that's called a blessed tragedy. I'll make sure I have a link for it. Do you have a message of hope for someone who is either just walking through this? Um, what do you want to say to, what do you want to say? I'll leave yeah. it. So I've been thinking about that today uh, in preparation. Uh, like I have nothing written down, but I was thinking about, um, I mean, there have been several things that brought me encouragement, you know, in the moment. And I think what I would say to someone, especially someone who's a believer, is it's incredibly encouraging for me to look at the life of Paul, right? Because Paul wasn't always Paul, right? Paul started out as a Christian killer, right? King Saul was, was terrible, right? Barbaric. And there are decisions that he made when he was Saul that killed a lot of people, 
unjustly. But then God gets a hold of him, right? And he changes his name. And, and what is a name? Right? All a name is is an identifier, right? It's the sound that people make to get, my, to get our attention, you know? And so uh, all a name is is an identifier. And God gave Saul a new name. God gave Saul a new identifier. And so with me, the night of the accident, I started to identify with killer, right? And if I had kept that identity, had it not been for all the things that led to me finding my identity in Christ, I may have kept that identifier my entire life. And what use would I have been to the kingdom, right? Had I not let God change my identity from, you know, pillar to forgiven, you know, to life bringer. I mean, I think that even anything that, that I identify with that's negative, God has the exact opposite there for me, right? So I'm a life giver, right? Like I, I try to breathe life into people who are down. And, you know, because God does that with, with you know, biblical characters, I mean, and, and here's the thing that I would say to people who didn't have someone forgiving on the other end or who are going through a really tough time, um, you know, though God will change our identifiers, it doesn't mean that we're going to get out of the consequences, right? So fortunately for me, I didn't go to prison. Uh, I did spend some time in jail, um, which it was short periods of time. Um, but Paul, even after God changed his identifier, spent a lot of his life in prison. You know, a majority of the, of the books of the Bible that we, you know, attribute to Paul's writing, he was writing from prison. And so even once God changes your identifier and understand it's already changed, you don't have to do anything for that. You don't have to do anything to have God change your identifier. He already has. Jesus did all the work for that. And so all you have to do is accept it. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to face earthly consequences. Maybe it's legal, right? I've been there. I've faced those. Um, maybe it's, I, I call these external consequences, how, you're, how people treat you, right? I went from being uh, someone that I think a lot of people felt like had a future. You know, I'm probably going to go to college. I, I was probably going to go play D2 football. Uh, I wasn't good enough to go like big division one, but I was good enough to go play D2 on scholarship. And that was gone. And so I think a lot of people looked at me and they, their opinion of me changed, right? Whether it be students, you know, my peers were awful towards me. And again, I, I don't blame them. Um, but even the parents, right? I, I, I lost my identity, you know, my public identity. Um, or whether it's internal, right? The, the, I can sit here and talk about the accident. I can talk about all the, the terrible things that happened because of it. And I can be extremely well-adjusted and it not bother me talking about it. But ultimately, there's still always guilt, right? There's still always that consequence of guilt and knowing that what I did took the life of another human being. Um, but, you know, those are all earthly consequences. Right. When we die and go to heaven, those are gone for us. Amen. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so, so that would be, I guess, my encouragement um, to someone that's going through this is like, listen, even though you're going to face some earthly consequences, let God give you your identifier. Let God change the way that, that you identify yourself. Right. You're not a killer. Right. You're not a murderer. Right. You God created you to be a life giver, and you can still do that. No mistake eliminates the plan that God has for your life. 
And so, you know, that's how I look at what, what we're doing now. That's how I try to look at, you know, my daily life. Like I'm a father, right? That's an identifier that God gave me. That's like the scariest one, you know, because right. I can explain this entire story to teenagers across the state, across the country on pod, via podcast. I can explain it to them, but I got to make sure it sinks in with my own kids, right? Like this is something they're going to know about daddy you know, at a young age, as soon as I think that, I mean, and I've, I've kind of explained it to my son about why we wear seatbelts, you know, he, my son knows red lights mean stop, yeah, like he's four and he, you know, there's one time that, you know, maybe I accidentally took a, a red light. I thought it was going to say yellow and he was on me from the back seat. And I say, you know, that's a, you know, that's a job. Like one of my identifiers is dad, you know? And so we have to look at the identifiers that God gives us and we have to hold on to those. And realize that every other identifier that's negative, that doesn't come from God. Yeah. That comes directly from Satan. It comes from the pits of hell. And it's not true. Yeah. Everything, everything that God's created, Satan counterfeits. And so that goes with what we think about ourselves, right? God gives us the lens that we should look at ourselves through. Satan gives us a lens that, um, you know, in this earthly kind of fleshly selfish lens, where everything that we do is, or every, every identifier that we give ourselves is not taking into account what God has already said. So, you know, I, I wish I could, I could pinpoint this as, as poignantly as possible. Whatever you've done, whatever consequences, you know, have come from what you've done, whether it be the life of someone else, uh, whether it be injury or the consequences will still be here because God isn't, God creates created principles from the beginning, right? Sowing and reaping is a principle that God creates that even unbelievers take advantage of and can utilize, right? The decisions that we make affect the consequences that we have. So that's going to happen, right? Like, and we have to understand that just because consequences happen doesn't mean that we are the terrible person or someone that God can't use. Doesn't define you. Yeah. It doesn't define you. If you let God define you, and realize, like, first of all, yeah, we're all sinners. We all mess up. Like, it's going to happen. But that God defines us. When God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus, right? Like, Jesus took all of it for you. So, though there are some earthly consequences, there are no consequences for, for what you've done in heaven, right? Like, that's, heaven is perfect. Like, all this is going to be forgotten when we're in heaven. So, that's my kind of, I guess, a little rant, you know, kind of preaching about just, no, that's a good reminder. Take, mm-hmm. take the identifier. Take what God, how God identifies you and relate to that. Hold on to that. And right. Anything, anything that's not biblically, you know, sound, that's not from God, understand that if it's not from God, it has to come from, from Satan. Right. So right. My, Don't believe the lie. Mm, it's good. But as far as like hard days because of the act, like do like the hard days get fewer? Okay, so let's let's say that for a second because I had a friend, another fellow caddy, who said, thankfully, the really hard days still happened, but they're not they're farther. Like there's a stretch, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like I can start to see that light. Like if you asked me this two years ago, I would be like, I don't see that yet. I long for that day. And now I see the really hard days are getting spread out. I don't let myself get, maybe I, 
I don't go down the rabbit hole or beat myself up like I used to, but I still like, how is that? Like, yeah. So I would say, so for me, the hard days in the beginning, I, I think I had so many um, that nothing really seems that hard anymore because, you know, what I went through immediately after the accident, waiting on trial, trying to go back, going, I went back to school among all these people that hated me. Um, you know, not all of them did, but a lot of them did. Um, teachers, I had some really rough times with teachers. Um, because of, of the accident. So I had a lot of hard ones right off the bat. Yeah, every day was a hard day. Every day was the worst day of my life. Um, so they did start to get further and further apart. And I just got to the point where I took myself out of situations that I could have a hard day. But I went to college an hour away. I didn't run from it. I told people about it. But I said, I'm not going to set myself up for, any more, for more hard days than what I'm already going to have. And so as they get further and further apart, they also get less and less hard. You know, in my experience, they get further and further apart. And the days that are hard, you're able to shift your perspective easier as time goes on. Right? I mean, we're over a decade out from my accident, right? I'm yeah, coming up on 11 years. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that I don't think about it you know, the fact that Jane Watts isn't here, but because there's nothing I can do about it, I, I, what I can do is I can raise my kids. I can be the best husband that I can be for my wife. And so kind of like, you know, we were talking about earlier about how I said, you know, if you're in a briar patch and you're just walking, you know, there's an open field, you just keep walking through it. You know, the first couple of of pricks of thorns are going to hurt worse than the other ones because you almost get desensitized. Right. And so there have been times, though, where I've been overwhelmed with gratitude, you know, where I just broke down because I'm like, I don't deserve this grace and this forgiveness. But God, am I thankful to have it. So, yeah, I I mean, at this point, I can't tell you the last time that I had a day that was just like hard because of the accident. You know what? No, I can't. I can tell you the last time um, we were it was when it was before COVID. Because we were speaking at, our, at the class that we do at the courthouse, and Amanda was talking about everything that happened with Briar. And Briar was 18, 18 months old when the accident happened. And at the time, it was like, my son is coming up on 18 months old. And, and all it hit I could you. Mm-hmm. It just it hit me. And I, I kind of, you know, luckily I'm able to kind of push things down. I got through the class. I got home and I just cried. Yeah. And I said, you know, because... I don't know that I'd have been able to, do, even today, I don't know that I could be as forgiving as what she was without God just speaking through me. Exactly, you know? yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if my kid was on the other end of this. So How is Briar today? How is Briar today? She is awesome. She is a, a little miracle. Uh, she's full of fast. I think she turned uh, 11 or 12 uh, not too long ago. Um, you know, she picks on me whenever I'm around her and her mom. Uh, she goes to a private Christian school. She's brilliant. Her mom says that, and her mom always, you know, I'm not bragging, but uh, that girl knows her Bible better than Amazing. the vast majority of adults. She came into I've life had. with a testimony. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. She is. Um, and it's funny because she, she's even spoke with us at some of our events 
Um, though she doesn't remember the accident, she can speak about what it's like to grow up without her grandma, um, you know, and that it's tough. But also she talks about forgiveness, you know, because she knows the whole story. She She's heard me speak. She's heard me give some of the graphic details at, at a young age. And she still just, you know, she's this little um, bundle of joy and, and life. And it's just, it's really cool seeing her now, um, you know, because I was there in the hospital a couple times and, you know, when it wasn't looking so good. That does make it easier. If something happened to Briar today because of the accident and that, you know, there's still, I mean, she's going to have complications. Um, she has like a, a bend that you can visibly see in her arm. Um, she'll probably have uh, arthritis, you know, her entire, I mean, that, she's not, you know, out of the woods. So if something happened to her, like I would be devastated, right? And I think a lot of the, the work that has gone into me, you know, being able to talk, it would it would take a lot to get through that. But she is, she's, she's just a little miracle child. I love that. Mm. So I think, you know, I, you know, I don't know the hypothesis, but the ones, the people that I meet that for whatever reason, God puts it on their heart to speak, to to talk about this painful thing, to not hide it. You know, I see healing and it just gives me hope, you know, that the more we try to connect with people, the not the faster we'll get to our healing because I don't want to compare anybody's healing, but it's just, I don't even have words. It's just a beautiful thing to be able to hear other people's story and to maybe step for just a second in their shoes and, um, give God the glory, obviously, um, for what he can do because only he could do it. I'm just really grateful that I got to connect with you all the way from Texas to Ohio and, yeah. you know, that you guys are doing good and COVID won't, you know, we've already been through hell. Like we've already been through our worst <laughs> year of our lives. So when COVID hits, it's like, this isn't yeah. the worst we've ever been through. Yeah, yeah, that's all. Yeah, right. And we know that this season will end, but I know God has got big plans um, for you and uh, Amanda's life and this story and that Jane's legacy and how many people, it, it lives on. Her story didn't end with the, the accident either, which is a way to honor her life by sharing it. So Absolutely. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Accidental Hope. Remember to seek hope and share it. Come back next week. Bye. Happy Music Number 7 brought to you by scottholmesmusic.com.